Welcome to the Crossing Church Podcast. This week, we have a special guest, Dr. Mark Rutland. He was the president of Southeastern University and Oral Roberts University, founded Global Servants, and the National Institute for Christian Leadership. This weekend, he's preaching on the supernatural versus the natural. Now here's Dr. Mark Rutland. Good morning. It's great to be here. You're a jolly crew. I love coming to the crossing. I, you, you should travel with me. You should go to some of the sour push churches that I go to. You, you can tell almost immediately that laughter has never happened in that house. And that's hard for me. I, I see life is extremely hard and laughter is necessary. Amen? But you're a jolly crew, and I appreciate that. It's always nice to be back at The Crossing. I want to just very briefly uh, give you an infomercial on these books. There is a product table as you go out, and I checked. There are three of my books that are there. Uh, This is 21 Seconds to Change Your World. Uh, This book sold out last night, but they got some more in, so we have it. This uh, is a book about the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm and how they work together as an instrument of grace in your life. Um, It is interesting to note, isn't it, that both of them, the two greatest devotional classics of two of the world's great religions, were written by two men born in the same small village a thousand years apart. So I hope you get 21 seconds. The reason for the title is that's about how long it takes to pray the Lord's Prayer. In in Alabama, it takes 45 seconds, but... (laughs) This book has just gone great, and it's kind of is a companion piece to that one. This is called Courage to be Healed. It's about inner healing, the healing of damaged emotions. Uh, it's not about physical healing, which, of course, I believe in, but this happens to be about uh, emotional healing. And I hope that you will get it, enjoy it, and that you will buy it for those uh, that you think it might be a blessing to. And then this has been our huge seller. This is David the Great. Uh, this is a book about the life and leadership of King David, and it's, it's sold like crazy for two reasons. One is women buy it and read it and love it, but we hit a market on this that most Christian books cannot hit. Men don't generally buy and read Christian books. Walk through a Christian bookstore and look at the titles and the authors. They're usually written by women for women, and, but some men can read and... Um, <laughs> If you have one in your life who can read, then you should get him this book. And this, this uh, has been huge with men. Uh, we're, I'm delighted for it. Why not? David was a man's man. This is a tough guy. This, this book is not about your little sanitized Sunday school version of King David. This is about the real deal, everything included. And men love this guy. He's, he, he's, a, he's a man's man, a warrior's warrior. This is the kind of guy you want to take deer hunting with you. You might not want him to take your wife deer hunting. But we deal with that. We deal with that. David was like the girl with the curl in the middle of her forehead. When he was good, he was very good. And when he was bad, he was horrid. And so I hope you'll enjoy this, David the Great. There are all three out there. I hope you'll get them. This probably doesn't matter to you to hear it. It matters to me to say it. I do not take one penny from any book, 19 books, no royalties, no sales here, nothing. 
I'm speaking here. I don't take honoraria, love offerings, anything like that. I'm paid a salary by the National Institute of Christian Leadership, and my arrangement is that I don't take remuneration from any other ministry source. It all goes to the Foreign Missions Program at Global Servants, particularly our girls' homes in Asia and Southeast Asia and in West Africa. So... Hope you'll go out to that book table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. <laughs> Mortgage, refinance your house. Steal the children's lunch money. And you are jolly this morning. Good. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn to the second chapter of Luke. I preached this uh, message on last night. Um, they told me that the heathens come on Saturday night and the real Christians are... It wasn't that what you said. I think it was something like that. So I, you have the advantage. I warmed up last night on the, on the pagans. And so this morning, you get a more finished version. Now, after you hear it, you may say, really? Um, what I'm going to read are two passages that don't seem to connect. Luke chapter 2, and then we'll turn directly to Acts chapter 1. What I, what I want to deal with is the conflict and the, and the confluence between the natural and the supernatural. And I want to deal with two widely disparate points in the life and ministry of Jesus. His birth and his promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit after the resurrection. So Luke chapter 2, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Pause just a moment. It means the city of your lineage, what your family city. And Joseph and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him for them in the end. Turn to, to Acts chapter 1. Now we have gone through the life, the death, the, the life, the ministry, the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And now Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, has now decided to write another book that's about the post-resurrection church and the power, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. So he is now beginning his second book. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, meaning the book of Luke, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, meaning the crucifixion, by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days. And look at the next line. Make a note of it or underline it or circle it or something. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me, for John, that's John the Baptist, it's very important to me as a Pentecostal to know that the first person to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not a Pentecostal, he was a Baptist. <laughs> for John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now put your hand on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Padre bendito celestial, te damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta mañana porque te necesitamos mucho. Te glorificamos. Ayúdame, por favor, y lléname con tu Espíritu Santo y úsame a su gloria si es posible. Y por favor, glorifica tu nombre en este mensaje. Thank you, Lord, for all your presence with us. We yield ourselves to you as fully as we know how. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God. Amen. The, evidently, there are a few people here that speak the heavenly language. You, you do not have to speak Spanish to go to heaven. I've heard that. That's not true. You will be given lessons once you get there. But why stand in that long, embarrassing line? <laughs> all right, all right. It seems odd, doesn't it, to uh, preach in January this far past Christmas of, uh, on the passage of the birth of Christ, the Nativity passage, which I just read at the beginning. But I think maybe from this vantage point, we can think of it in a different way. We, we tend to make a Christmas card out of the story. We, we, we tidy it all up. We know from our childhood catechism, don't we? Jesus was very God and very man. That's the secret of the incarnation. Incarnation, the word of God, preexistent, co-eternal, second person of the Trinity that preexisted even creation was spoken into the womb of a virgin girl and he became the physical man, Jesus. That, that person, Jesus, was the pre-existent, co-eternal second person, the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that. And we know that he was very God and very man. He, had, he wasn't half God and half man. He wasn't God from the waist up or something. He was very God and very man. The problem comes that the, the man side of that, the human side of that, is what we struggle with. And we struggle with it right from the very beginning in the nativity. You, you, you see the Christmas cards with the Holy Family, the traditional, and they're walking into the streets of Bethlehem, Mary seating on the donkey and Joseph leading the donkey, and there's always this resplendent glory around them. They all have halos. Joseph has a halo. Mary has a halo. She's got a halo around her tummy. Donkey has... 
halos. And we, uh, and we forget that the gospel according to Luke, I just read it to you, states it straight out, and they had no halos. That's in the Bible. Now, that's not the way the Bible says it, but that's what it means. The Bible says, and there was no room for them at the inn. Somebody shows up at your hotel with a halo, you just find him a room. You go down to the poor sucker in 119 and say, I'm sorry, sport, you're out. These people glow in the dark. They had no halo. There was nothing distinctive about them. They didn't walk through the streets of Bethlehem and people stick their heads out the windows and say, Luke chapter 2. Nobody was acting out Bible stories. I'm going to say something to you now. Hold on to your chairs. Here we go. There was nothing miraculous about the birth of Jesus. Now, in the, except in the sense that all babies' births are miraculous. There was nothing miraculous about the birth of Jesus. The conception of Jesus was a miracle. It was a miracle. The, the miracle of the immaculate conception. But his birth was natural. His conception was supernatural. The birth was natural. But we, we, we don't like that. We don't like that. Listen to the Christmas hymn. Which one is it? I think away in a manger. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. The little Lord Jesus. No crying he makes. <laughs> Sup with that. The baby Jesus couldn't cry. He was like born without tear ducts. Or what? what does that mean? What does that mean? Because we can't stand the idea of the savior of the world laying there squalling his lungs out. We don't like that. Where are the women here that have babies? Let me see your hands. How many? One, did, did that baby crying make? We had three crying they made all night. <laughs> so the baby Jesus couldn't cry because we don't like the idea of the baby Jesus laying there crying. But let me tell you something. If I, I'm an equal opportunity preacher, I like to offend everyone. So... <laughs> If we haven't done it so far, let's try this. Not only did crying he make, he made everything else babies make. Put that on a Christmas card. Now see, we don't like that idea. That's so natural. That's so natural. That's so human. Because we don't like the idea of somebody having to change the Messiah's diapers. But if that's not true, that's not just a minor issue. That's a profound theological issue. Hebrews says we, don't have, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with our feelings of infirmities. So if Jesus never laid there in his own filth needing somebody else to clean him up and care for him, he can't understand when we need someone to clean us up and take care of us. But that's, that's the tension between the natural and the supernatural embodied in the person of Jesus. Jesus didn't float around three feet off the ground with shafts of purple light flowing out from his fingernails and new age music playing in the background. He just looked like everybody else. Let me tell you something else too. The book of Isaiah says he wasn't even handsome. Hollywood cannot stand that. 
you will never see a movie about an ugly Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. I think that's going to be the title of my next book is The God of the Ugly. <laughs> the Bible, the book of Isaiah says he was not comely that we should desire to look upon him. He was, he was not handsome. And then he was just a human being who just happened to be God. That was the tension of his whole life and ministry. He's, he's God. And the word, the preexistent word became flesh. But all that anybody could see was the flesh. Do you see? It, he struggled with it his whole ministry. He is God thinking in transcendent cosmic reality. But he's got to take those thoughts and lay them on the boxcars of human vocabulary that are not strong enough to bear the weight. He's thinking in God, but he's talking to people who are thinking in human. So he's using human words to mean supernatural reality. So it's the conflict of the natural and the supernatural in everything that he said. We've had 2,000 years to work with this stuff. Imagine hearing it for the first time. Imagine you're on the front row when Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Oh, yeah. That's going to work. Sounds like a Stephen King novel, doesn't it? The night the dead buried the dead. But you see, he's talking about death, not death. He says, these people look like they're alive, but they're dead. These people are just dead. You shouldn't be dealing with them. You're alive. Let the dead people bury these dead people. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The whole thing in the Garden of Eden, the conflict between the natural and the supernatural, was over the issue of life and death. So God says, in the day that thou eatest of the fruit in the center of the garden, you will die. Satan said, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. God is jerking you around. And Eve took of the fruit and ate and saw that it was good to eat. And she gave the man and he did eat. Here's Dr. Rutland's question. Did they die? Did they bite that fruit and drop down dead? Did they die? No. Did they die? Yes. That issue is fundamental to the conflict between the natural and the supernatural. And it's in our, everything Jesus said. Every room Jesus left, everybody was asking themselves two questions. Who, who was that guy? And what was he talking about? Try this one. Sometimes it got downright funny. Try this one. Jesus in a room full of Jewish people. It's packed. Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and say there are two Gentiles, Greeks. There are two Gentiles at the door and they'd like to come in. Should we bring him in or not? And Jesus says, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bring forth a great harvest. But if it falleth into the ground and dieth, it bringeth forth a great harvest. That's his answer. That's his answer. Can't you see Philip and Andrew as they go back saying, do you think he meant like yes or no? But he's talking transcendent. He's talking supernatural. As long as I, the word, am in the seed pod of this human natural body, 
How big of a building can we build to get people in here? But if I will go into the ground and die, I will bring forth the supernatural harvest of the worldwide church so that all Gentiles can step over the threshold into the commonwealth of Israel. Sometimes, don't you think that, am I the only one that the disciples were just thick-headed? I mean, doesn't it seem to you at some point they should have, like, gotten it? How, oh, how about the resurrection of Lazarus? Jesus walks out into the cemetery. Lazarus has been dead. Four days, his body is decomposing. His sister says, I love the prissy language of the King James. She says, Lord, by now he stinketh. And Jesus says, roll away the stone, Lazarus come forth, and his body, which has been decomposing, reassembles at a cellular level, and he receives life and walks out. Don't you think somebody should have said, I don't know, I'm just guessing here, Messiah. (laughs) And maybe they did. But the resurrection of Lazarus was not the problem. That's purely supernatural, and that seems like the domain of God. We believe God can raise the dead. Here's the problem. When they left the cemetery to walk back to Lazarus' house, Jesus is wiping sweat off his forehead. The sweat was the problem, not the resurrection. We know God can raise the dead. Can God sweat? That's the conflict in the incarnation. That conflict still resides in the church. The struggle between what is natural, what is supernatural, and how do they, how do they flow together? So the life, death, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, and then for 40 days, we come to the first chapter of Acts, Jesus is speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And he says, now that's all we know. We don't know what he said. Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, not many days from now, you shall receive the promise of the Father. And the disciples said, oh, now we get it. Now we get it. That Jesus, that guy Now he's been killed and raised from the dead. We have a military, political, religious leader that cannot be killed. How many times can you kill a guy? Now he's going to set up the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule the Gentile nations with a rod of iron. And we're all going to share in it. And now comes the kingdom. Hasn't he been talking 40 days? Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so he says, not many days from now, you shall receive the promise of the Father. And they said, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, no. He says, no. You keep thinking kingdom. You're not going to get a kingdom. You got to think kingdom. You're going to get a kingdom. But it won't be a kingdom. They said, Lord, you said we would receive power. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. They said, that's what we stayed in here for was power. 
We're ready for the power. He said, but the only thing is, you're not going to receive any power. You don't get power. Power is natural. Power is of the kingdoms of the world. Power is of Caesar. Power is of armies. Remember the conflict, the conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate? Pilate says, look, I like you. I don't want to kill you. But they say, you're a king. Are you a king? Jesus hardly talked at all the whole time during the trial. But then he talks. He says, yes, I am a king. I'm not a king like Caesar. He's a king. If, he was, if, if Caesar was arrested, his army would rise up and fight. Caesar is a king with an army. I'm a king. I have an army, but they're, they're not going to rise up and fight. Yes, I'm a king with a kingdom, but not like Caesar. He's just a king. <laughs> and Pilate went out to them and said, let's don't do this. I don't know what's going on here, but something's wonky. You don't want to kill a guy that talks like that. So that whole struggle is still going on with the disciples. It went on the whole time between the natural and the supernatural. Remember the night that Jesus was arrested? Remember that? Simon Peter, who had just slept through the prayer meeting, that'll tell you something. (laughs) But Simon Peter awakes and the cops are putting the cuffs on Jesus. Simon Peter pulls his sword out and whacks one of the cops, chops his ear off. Jesus says, oi. Peter said, you said sword? I heard you say, get a sword. Jesus says, sword? Not sword, sword. And the only regenerative, recreative miracle recorded in the New Testament, I'm not saying it's the only one Jesus did, it's the only one the Bible records. He made lame legs walk, he made blind eyes see, but the only human body part that he caused to grow back. He touched that cop and his ear grew back. Wouldn't it be a horrible, pathetic, stupid tragedy If after 2,000 years, Jesus still has to come along behind the people that we whack and heal them, when we're whacking them in his name, we don't get to whack anybody. There's no Christian mujahideen, no Christian jihad. We don't have that job description, see? We don't get to whack anybody. So we said, Lord, we, we want to whack people. We don't, whack, we don't whack them in your name, but we want to whack people. Jesus said, nobody, nobody gets to whack anybody. We said, well, what do we get? Jesus says, you, you get to get whacked. We said, Lord, we want to be the whackers. He said, no, you get to be the whackies. He said, Lord, we, we want to pay Pontius Pilate and Caesar Augustus and corrupt religious leaders. We want to pay them back. What they did to you, we want to do it to them. We're ready to do it to them. We want to crucify these people. Jesus said, you don't get to crucify anybody. We don't? No. What do we get? You get to get crucified. We said, Lord, that." See, that doesn't feel good. If anyone would come after me, 
let him take up his cross daily and follow me. So here are the disciples, post-resurrection, pre-Pentecost, stranded in this terrible moment. Lord, we want the supernatural. You shall receive it. Is it going to make us kings and powerful and political leadership? Are we still going to live in this world where Caesar runs everything? Now listen to me on this, brethren. Caesar always runs everything. Now we're going to have to get this through our heads. We don't get to replace Caesar. Jesus himself didn't replace Caesar. We live in a world... I hear Christians somehow all the time, we're terrified, we're gonna, there's going to become a new world order, a, a one world leadership, a, a, a dictatorship that will persecute Christians. <laughs> That's how we began. The Christian community at its greatest, most powerful, most supernatural moment was living under a one world government by a mad, run by a madman in a foreign country. And... All it did was get us killed and thrown to the lions and slaughtered and our business confiscated and the power of the supernatural flowed in miraculous grace. So where do we stand in this tension? Where do we stand in this? There are two equal and opposite errors. The one is to deny the power of the supernatural because it's awkward and complicated and difficult We just say, okay, God doesn't deal that way anymore. We're not going to have signs or wonders or or the gifts of the Spirit or miracles. We'll just cut that off. But that strands the church operating in our own strength and our own power. Now, let me tell you something. You can actually do a lot in the church in your own strength and power. I know that sounds awful to say that, but it's true. You can actually build pretty big churches, do a lot of good things in your own power. A church without the Holy Ghost is not totally, from an observational and outside point, necessarily going to be a failure. It can be, at the outside level, quite successful, but there is no power. There's no power. On the other hand... We can take the power of the supernatural into our own hands and try to make that work. Equal and opposite errors. The one is to deny the supernatural. The other is to take it into our own hands. We're going to run the supernatural. We can can take it in our hands and cause things. That's what I always used to tell the kids at the universities. I'd say, listen, don't add anything. Don't add anything. Why, Why isn't... I don't, I'm, I've never heard it here. Maybe you have it, but somebody has a word of prophecy in service. Why can't they give a word of prophecy in their own voice? Why does it always have to sound weird? Because we're trying to make it sound supernatural. So this kid came to me at ORU and he said, I went to my home church this weekend. And he said, something happened that really bothered me. I said, what was it? He said, a lady gave a word of prophecy, and it sounded so real, so powerful. He said, it moved me. I said, what was the problem? He said, her grammar was bad. (laughs) He said, can't God, doesn't God have good grammar? I said, I said, listen to me. What you're dealing with is the perfect mixture, the power of the supernatural flowing through limited human instruments. 
When we try to make it seem supernatural, we mess it up. But God is working through the natural to effectuate the supernatural. That's the blend. And it's always like that. I believe that Pentecostal theology, and, and that's not necessarily an oxymoron. I, I, I believe that Pentecostal theology is not actually pneumatological. It's actually incarnational. It is the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through flesh, just as it did in the life of Jesus, for supernatural power. When we take it in our hands, when we try to make it seem something, anybody with profit on his business card probably isn't one. <laughs> so I, when we try to make it just, see, when you take it in your hands, a lot of you here evidently speak Spanish. What is the Latin root for every romance word for hands? Mano, from which we get the English word manipulate. When we take hold of the supernatural to convince you, control you, dominate you, create my own little kingdom, I am manipulating. When I deny the supernatural and operate in my own flesh kingdom, that's what, that's what bursts churches wide open. Kingdom against kingdom. kingdom. When you search through the annals of all these church fights, you ever, you ever drive down a road? I mean, it's discouraging, isn't it? You drive down a road and there's a church, you know, the Antioch Church. You go a thousand yards down the same street and it's the new Antioch Church. A thousand yards more, it's the Antioch Remnant Holiness Church of God by the gas station. <laughs> and you realize what's happened is it was not about, you ask any of those people what it was about. Oh, it was about what we sang. It was about the, whether we put the words up on a screen. It was about, this is not about any of those things. What it was about is who's in charge here. It's always kingdom against kingdom. The kingdom of the old people against the kingdom of the young people, against the kingdom of the music, against the kingdom of the children's ministry. It is the kingdom of the youth. And they just divide up and fight. And that's, that's the stuff of Caesar. That's the stuff of Pontius Pilate. That's natural. That's natural. The other error is trying to control and manipulate and use the supernatural to get our own way, to glorify ourselves. See, thou shalt not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I was raised to believe that meant don't use Jesus to cuss people out. Which, by the way, is not a good thing. Okay. I'm, I'm real like opposed to that. But that's not what that verse means. What that verse means is you don't get to use the authority and name of God for vainglorious purposes. When you say, thus saith the Lord, when you say, thus saith the Lord, you better have the goods. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice? I often think, God, would it be so good if you would like help? Some nincompoop stands up and says, thus saith the Lord. Wouldn't it be nice if God would say, no, I didn't. This sucker is on his own. 
But that's the reason that we receive and operate in the gifts of the Spirit in community. Because we're supposed to judge those things. We're supposed to discern those things. I've been in churches. Somebody gives a word of prophecy, and you can tell from the opening phrase that they've got one wheel in the ditch. You can tell it the minute they start. You think everybody in the church is sitting there thinking, oh, God, this guy's nuts. And everybody's going, praise God, praise God. That's where the tension between the natural and supernatural is right where the rubber hits the road. That's where somebody has to say, Bob, we love you. This doesn't invalidate your place in the universe, but we won't receive that today. God's not near as mad at us as you are. (laughs) Have a seat. Probably had a tough time with the old woman last night. But you're not going to inflict it on us. That's, that's, that's the tension. That's the tension. When it gets all wonky and weird and supernatural at a level that people are just using the supernatural to jerk each other around, that's manipulation. When we slam the window on the fingers of the Holy Ghost, then we're operating, we'll have anything left but the flesh. You shall receive power when that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. In order to be my martyr witnesses worldwide, my kingdom. That's the way we close the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory forever and ever. You get in underneath that. And that awesome, huge tension between the natural and the supernatural finds an effective manifestation in common saints like you and me. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for an outpouring of the spirit of power. Come, Holy Ghost. Empower us in our daily lives, in the church. May it not be corrupted. May it never have our fingerprints on it. God, spare us from the temptation to manipulate and control. But spare us, God, from our own strength and our own devices. When the flesh has failed us, come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, and God bless this great church. We hope you enjoyed that message from Dr. Mark Rutland. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash crossingchurch, and you can download the Crossing Church app. Just go to wearecrossing.com and click the link for iOS or Android. Thanks for joining us this week, and we can't wait to worship with you next weekend.